Hey, this is the Ben Shapiro Show. A lot coming up for you this hour. A little bit later on in this hour, it's a Friday. That means that we have to do something relaxing. It's a very terrible news day. We can do something relaxing a little, little, little bit later this hour. We'll have Uncle Ben's SJW Storytime. Everybody loves Uncle Ben's SJW Storytime. If you don't, well, I don't care. I'm doing it anyway. So we'll get to that a little bit later in the hour. We'll also get to the updates on the New Zealand terror attack that has claimed the lives of 49 innocent people. Horrific, evil, anti-Muslim, white supremacism, disgusting, horrifying in every possible way. We'll get to that a little bit later. We'll bring you the updates from the media, which are trying now, naturally, to pin this on mainstream conservatism. Not a shock. This is what they do whenever a white supremacist does something evil. The attempt is to connect that in to mainstream conservatism. They don't do the same thing when a radical environmentalist shoots up a congressional baseball game because that's obviously silly to try and connect that to Bernie Sanders, even though the guy's screaming Bernie Sanders slogans is bad faith and stupid. I agree. You know what else is bad faith and stupid? Try and connect mainstream conservatism or criticism of radical Islam with a white supremacist going around attempting to murder Muslims who are simply worshiping Allah. That is, that is absurd and ridiculous. But media are going to media. Media always going to media. We'll get to that in a little bit. First, we have to give you the updates on the 2020 race. So Beto O'Rourke was asked today whether he had actually, whether he was ready to release his fundraising statistics. So you'll recall that Bernie Sanders in his first 24 hours raised like $10 million. Kamala Harris raised 1.5. Beto said, Nah, bro, I don't think so. We have some other Beto updates, so that means it's time for some Beto-themed music. Yeah, rad. So, Beto O'Rourke, he, he's, not just, he's not just, you know, a man of the people. He's also bumming gas money. So this son of privilege, this uber-privileged guy, son of a judge, lives in a, in a three-story home once occupied by Pancho Villa, worth $9 million dollars. Well, now he's in Iowa and he's driving around and he's asking people to give him money so that he can fill his car with gas. Even though I was I was told by reliable sources that the world would end if climate change continued. And yet there he is, this greedy neoliberal fascist filling up his car with the gasoline and asking you to pay for it. Here is Beto. Hey, everybody. We're in Wapolo, Iowa. We started the day in Keokuk. We then went to Fort Madison. Then Burlington, we're going to stay on the road for a very long time. But it takes your contributions to keep us out here. Let me show you. We've just filled up. Uh, so we've got 12 gallons in the Dodge Van Caravan that cost us $28.53. Please pitch in. Join everyone else who's helping to make this happen. He's so down to earth and wonderful. He's just like you, except for when he's claiming that we're all going to die. In a, in a global firestorm if people keep filling up their cars. But if you could please pay for his gas, that'd be awesome. Also, a kind of hilarious story from Reuters. Let me, let me start with this. I don't think that people should generally be held accountable for the dumb things they do when they are teenagers. I don't. I think when you're a teenager, you're dumb. It's part of being a teenager. Well, Beta O'Rourke was, in fact, a dumb teenager. He belonged, apparently, to the oldest group of computer hackers in American history, according to Reuters. Now, I hold this standard. The left does not hold this standard, which is why they go after Brett Kavanaugh with allegations that were not verified in any way and the suggestion that he was somehow a gang rapist when he was 17, even though they couldn't come up with evidence. Well, Beto O'Rourke was apparently a member of a computer hacking team, the hugely influential cult of the dead cow, jokingly named after an abandoned Texas slaughterhouse, is notorious for releasing tools that allowed ordinary people to hack computers running Windows, Windows on Microsoft. It's also known for inventing the word hacktivism to describe human rights-driven security work. Members of the group 
have protected O'Rourke's secret for decades, reluctant to compromise his political viability. Now, in a series of interviews, CDC members have acknowledged O'Rourke as one of their own. In all, more than a dozen members of the group agreed to be named for the first time in a book about the hacking group by this reporter that is scheduled to be published in June by Public Affairs. O'Rourke was interviewed early on in his Senate run. He didn't break into computers or write code that enabled other people to do so, but his membership, says Reuters, in the group could explain his approach to politics better than anything on his resume. He says, there's just this profound value in being able to be apart from the system and look at it critically and have fun while you're doing it. I think of the cult of the dead cow as a great example of that. It's pretty astonishing, frankly, that the media treat this with kid gloves. But there's a real split in the media. On the one hand, they love Beto because Beto is they. They are Beto. They're all the same. On the other hand, they don't like Beto because Beto's kind of white. And he's kind of privileged. And that's uncomfortable. This happens to be an article from Reuters that is the Beto's, Beto is awesome version of the story. Beto's great because he likes to brood. Apparently, he was part of this cult of the dead cow. But that wasn't the only weird stuff that he was doing when he was a, a young man. Apparently, he was also writing very weird stories, like very weird stories. He has creative writing from nearly three decades ago under the handle Psychedelic Warlord, and that remains online. One article he wrote as a teen mused how the world would work without money. He saw the end of starvation and class distinctions if there were no money. Now, again, I, I doubt that Beto feels the same way today. If he does, he's adult. That's silly. Another T-file from work written when he was 15 is a short and disturbing piece of fiction. Says, One day, as I was driving home from work, I noticed two children crossing the street. They were happy, happy to be free from their troubles. This happiness was mine by right. I had earned it in my dreams. As I neared the young ones, I put all my weight on my right foot, keeping the accelerator pedal on the floor until I heard the crashing of the two children on the hood and then the sharp cry of pain from one of the two. I was just so fascinated for a moment that when, after I had stopped my vehicle, I just sat in a daze, sweet visions filling my head. In another piece, he took on a self-proclaimed neo-Nazi who maintained that Hitler was misunderstood and didn't personally want Jews killed. O'Rourke and a Jewish friend questioned the man about his theories and let him, let him ramble about Jews and African-Americans and attempt to let him hang himself with his own words. Now, people are making hay out of this stuff. As I say, I don't think any of this is particularly relevant. Beto was a teenager. The only reason I mention it is because if it were a Republican who had written this, we would hear about how this person was a sociopath until the end of time from Reuters. But as I say, the media are divided over Beto because on the one hand, they love that Beto is broody. They like the fact that Beto was the kind of person who went to Columbia and played guitar on the quad because that's what they were. And that he couldn't find himself immediately after college and had to spend years traveling with a punk rock band making his way, dude, righteous. And that's, that, that's half of the media. The other half of the media, very angry at Beto because he's too white. So one member of the media, very angry at him, was asking him, about why he should be running at all. This would be Gail King from CBS This Morning. She asked him, why are you even running? I mean, don't you think that it's a disadvantage in this race for you to be a white guy from privilege? In this particular, with the Democratic candidates, there are more women and more people of color than ever before. Some could say it's the way the party is leaning, that maybe the voters are signaling that's the candidate we want. Yeah. Do you feel at a disadvantage as a white man? As a privileged white man, they say about you. I, I don't feel at a disadvantage. And at the same time, I feel extraordinarily grateful that the Democratic Party has produced so many extraordinary 
candidates, each of whom brings a different set of skills and life experiences and background. Okay, so there is Beto trying to deny his privilege. How dare he deny his privilege? Meanwhile, there's an article over at the New York Times, a news article by Astiad Herndon, in which he contends that Beto O'Rourke's sitting next to his wife is really bad, and also that he's too white. So you can see the attacks are going to be strong on Beto. I, I, again, I don't think Beto survives this politically. I, I think the chances that the intersectional left rip him down are extraordinarily high, really, really high. So this columnist for the New York Times, this is a news article, not an opinion piece, says, throughout the video, Mr. O'Rourke's wife, this is his launch video, Mr. O'Rourke's wife, Amy, sat quietly by her husband's side, periodically grasping his hand as he outlined his campaign vision. She occasionally smiled and gazed. Mr. O'Rourke, 46, has repeatedly cast his presidential bid as a sign of generational change, but several authors, business leaders, and scholars who focus on gender studies and discrimination said there was nothing new or progressive about the power dynamics projected in the video. So now they're going to rip Beto down because his wife was sitting next to him on a tape and not talking. Okay, so the New York Times is angry at Beto because his wife sat next to him for an interview. But the best, again, this is not an opinion piece from the New York Times. This is a news piece, quote, this is not the first time Mr. O'Rourke has been accused of appearing to revel in his advantages as a white male in an increasingly diverse Democratic Party. What does that even mean? He, this is not the first time he has been accused of appearing to revel in his advantages as a white male. So they're not accusing him of reveling. They're accusing him of appearing to revel, or maybe not even appearing to revel, but being accused of appearing to revel. Okay, that's, that's a chain of logic that simply is unfollowable. The bottom line here is that O'Rourke is being destroyed by a media that wish to tear him down. And does he have it coming? He does, but it is telling that nobody had anything to say about any of this stuff until Beto O'Rourke ran against a bunch of other Democrats for president. When he was running against Ted Cruz, none of this stuff came out. We weren't going to talk about Beto's background. We weren't going to talk about the fact that he's an empty vessel. Then it was all, look how sweaty he is. Look how he rides a skateboard, guys. Look at how he used to play bass guitar. I mean, he's rad. Then he ran a bunch of, against a bunch of intersectional Democrats and it was, look how white he is. Look how privileged he is. Now, as I recall, Ted Cruz is Hispanic guys. They could have done the same thing when he was running for Senate in Texas. They did not. I wonder why. I wonder why they did not. Oh, wait, I know why. Of course, we all know why. Because they wanted Bader to win the Senate race and they don't actually want him to win these presidential primaries. One of the things that the Daily Wire undertook to do back in February of 2018 following a spate of mass shootings is we decided that we would no longer name the shooters in mass shootings, that we would no longer give publicity to those shooters, that we would no longer give publicity to their political programs because we didn't want to generate copycats. One of the reasons we did that is we looked at some of the research by Professor Andrew Joy from Western New Mexico University. Professor Joy joins us on the line right now. Professor Joy, thanks so much for your time. No problem. So... Why don't we start with this? Uh, what, what sort of attributes uh, do we find are, are common among mass shooters like the one that we saw in New Zealand just yesterday? Well, typically, when you look at mass shooters, you tend to see that they have these three traits that we call the dark triad. So you have narcissism, um, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. And narcissism is the one that tends to really drive these people when you look at how they're feeling in society and why they try and lash out at that society. And and when it comes to the the narcissistic, you know, the, the, the narcissism that they seek, it seems like the internet may have something to do. Do you, do you think the internet has something to do 
with with the narcissism being being blown up. I mean, there's been a lot of talk over the last 24 hours, particularly about this particular shooter in New Zealand who is who is trafficking on on kind of alt right white supremacist message boards like 8chan. Do you think that the 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 prevalence of social media has exacerbated this problem? Absolutely. I mean, these people, they're looking for something to validate themselves. And when you go online, you can find that echo chamber that supports exactly what you're looking for. You don't have to go out. You don't have to get outside opinions. You get in this little silo and it builds up exactly what you're, what you're looking for. You get that confirmation bias that you think, all right, I am exactly right in what I'm thinking. And then they tend to act on that. And one of the things that you've talked extensively about is the idea that we shouldn't be naming these shooters. I assume that goes to the narcissism question. What should we be doing in cases like this where the shooter releases some sort of large manifesto, a political manifesto driven toward toward getting attention? What? How should the media cover the, these sorts of things? Well, I would say the best approach is just to not give them that attention. They're seeking it. They want it. Uh, a lot of times they tend to, as you know, they probably tend to commit suicide or you know, get down that hail of gunfire, glorify themselves in that way. But even when they're caught alive, you just Ignore them. Focus on the victims. Don't let their message get out. If there's something important you have to do there, if there's, for instance, a situation like the Boston Marathon bombing and they're actively looking for these people, then it seems okay to get, let them, you know, let certain details out. But if, if the situation contained, it's probably safer not to give them what they're looking for and just to focus on the healing process, you know, identifying the victims, helping people figure out how they can contribute to a uh, you know, curing the issue rather than saying, hey, this is what this guy was after. Let's, let's talk about him. We're speaking with Professor Andrew Joy from Western New Mexico University. Professor Joy, one of the things that happens, you know, this is talk radio, we're in politics. In, in sort of the political sphere, you see this on, on a lot of different sides. When there's a, a flashpoint in politics, people tend to use that flashpoint to generate a narrative. And in this particular case, there are certain political people who may look at the manifesto and say, well, this gives me a jumping off point to make points that I want to make more broadly about ideology or about gun control or about certain political answers. How would you draw the balance between the need to discuss important issues and giving attention to the the manifestos or the thoughts of a shooter like this? I'd say it's a very it's a very thin line you have to walk there. There is a conversation that needs to be had about these things. For example, gun control. You know, you, you want to talk about gun control. You want to see if there's a way that we can solve these issues. Uh, you also want to talk about the other side of it was uh, demagoguery, for example. You know, we have a lot of political demagoguery right now, and that has consequences. But at the same time, if you point to all these social ills and you say these are responsible for creating this shooter, you're taking a certain level of responsibility off the fact that this was an individual who is mentally ill. In some respect, there's something abnormal about their development, and you can't just ignore that aspect. If you focus on demonizing one issue or another, you're going to miss the bigger picture. And I think you need to let things sit a little, you know, wait until they... Letting things sit a little okay. seems like it makes some sense to me, just because one of the things that, that seems to happen in, in the aftermath of all of these things, especially when they are politically motivated, is that you, ex you, you end up accidentally amplifying the message of the person who you're attempting to actually decry. So, for example, in this particular case, you have a white supremacist do something. And so everybody leaps out to decry the white supremacism, which, of course, deserves to be decried and deserves to be ripped into and shredded. But by the same token, you are now giving additional attention to this guy's views in order to do that. Correct. Yeah, it's, a, it's that idea of there's no such thing as bad publicity. You're still giving them that soapbox to stand from. And you say, hey, let's dive into his message. That message is still getting out there. He's still getting 
exactly what he wants. And these people that are going to see him, the people that have these this dark triads, this narcissism, they're going to say, oh, this guy is like me. And they're going to latch on to that. They're not going to look at the public shaming that's going on. They're going to say, this guy feels like I do. And he did something about it. And now look at that. He's victorious. He has reigned supreme over the people that oppressed him or wronged him in some way. And you're going to plant that seed for those mentally ill individuals. Now, final question, Professor Andrew Joy from Western New Mexico University. How common are these incidents? Are they becoming more common or is it just that the media coverage of them is, is more heavy? I think we are seeing that the trend is going up. I mean, there are certain graphs you can look at that show that these things are becoming more predominant. We are hearing about them more than we once did, but there is no denying that certain aspects of our culture, like the 24-hour news cycle, the access to social media, the fact that the internet is accessible from any point in our lives, is feeding the message these people are getting out. And that is, of course, going to cause these copycats and these like-minded individuals to seek these same avenues of expression. Well, Professor Joy, thanks so much for joining the Ben Shapiro Show. Really appreciate your time and the work you're doing. We'll do our best to, to follow your advice here on the Ben Shapiro Show. Well, we live in a world of very little forgiveness, very little intellectual honesty, and that's why it's kind of nice when there is a story in which intellectual honesty and forgiveness triumph. That story, actually, I know, this is not going to make so many people happy. Many, many of my listeners are not on the same side of this issue as I am. James Gunn was renamed the Guardians of the Galaxy director eight months after getting fired for old tweets. As I've said, I said it about Tucker Carlson. I've said it about James Gunn. I've said it about Kevin Hart. Old bad stuff that you've done is not an excuse to destroy your career now, especially when there is no evidence that you still feel the same way about that stuff, especially when you are being taken out of context to destroy you. That's what happened to James Gunn. I was sort of intimately involved in that story because that story actually began with another actor named Mark Duplass coming to the Daily Wire offices. He wanted to interview me about gun control. We spent about an hour and a half. I gave him some advice on how to cover gun control. And as he was leaving, I said to Duplass, don't mention this to any of your friends. Don't mention that you are here because people on the left cannot handle anyone who disagrees with them. Well, he didn't follow my advice. And just a couple of weeks later, he tweeted out that I was a nice person. All hell broke loose. People suggested I was a racist, sexist, bigot, homophobe. And Duplass, not knowing how to handle it, immediately denounced me and deleted his tweet saying that I was a decent human being. Well, somebody came to Duplass's aid. That person was James Gunn. He didn't say Duplass was right. He just said, don't attack Duplass. Duplass is a nice guy. At that point, people started digging up old stuff about James Gunn. Some of the old stuff they dug up was some nasty, old, gross tweets about child molestation. Now, he was in the shock jock arena. He did shock humor for a living. So those tweets were not indicative of him being a pedophile or anything. Disney, in the middle of that controversy, fired him. I said they should not have fired him. Number one, it was old. Number two, it was jokes. Number three, you know, it had nothing to do with anything that, that Disney was doing, and they knew what they were getting when they hired him in the first place. Now he is about to return. He's returning to direct the third film of Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy franchise. The news comes nearly eight months after the Walt Disney Company fired Gunn over a series of offensive years-old tweets. This is according to Reason.com. After he was fired, Disney condemned Gunn's past social media posts, which included bad jokes about violence and sexual assault against children. Gunn also apologized, saying he was a different person when he wrote the tweets in question. According to Deadline, Gunn attended several meetings with Walt Disney Studios president Alan Horn. Eventually, Disney decided to shift course, which I think is the right answer, because here's the reality. 
Just like every other manipulated boycott, this thing was not going to have any real effect on Guardians of the Galaxy 3. If James Gunn had directed Guardians of the Galaxy 3, there would have been a brief outrage period, and then no one would have cared. And that's what's happening right now. This is a positive move, even if you don't like James Gunn. Even if you don't like Guardians of the Galaxy. This is good. In the same way it would be good for Fox to stand by Tucker Carlson. Gunn wrote in a statement posted to Twitter, I'm tremendously grateful to every person out there who has supported me over the past few months. I'm always learning and will continue to work at being the best human being I can be. I deeply appreciate Disney's decision. I'm excited to continue making films that investigate the ties of love that bind us all. Okay, so again, I am, I am pleased that this is happening, even if I am not a huge James Gunn fan, nor do I believe that, that James Gunn's old tweets are great. But we need to have a more tolerant liberal, small L society. We need to have a more a society where people can handle the fact that people have done things in their past that they don't like and regret. There's been a constant theme since the beginning of the year. I declared that this year would be the year of the woke scold in which people were destroyed for their old stuff, for their old tweets, for saying things that violated the precepts of the social justice warriors. And so far, that, that's been spot on. I'm glad to see that there is at least a little bit of movement in the other direction. Meanwhile, there's a poll that came out a little bit earlier this week and it's, it's pretty astonishing. It's a new study. The study was summarized in the New York Times, and it talked about mass partisanship. There's a, it was written about by the New York Times' Thomas Edsel. Edsel observed that, that this study contained some disturbing statistics. Among them, 40, 42% of the people in each party view the opposition as downright evil. A stunning 20% of Democrats and 16% of Republicans believe, quote, we'd be better off as a country if large numbers of the opposing party in the public just died today. And if the opposing party wins the 2020 election, 18% of Democrats and 13% of Republicans feel violence would be justified. Those numbers should terrify everyone. This goes back to what I was saying early on in the show. If you believe that we are at a catastrophic breaking point in the United States and that if people of the other party were to win an election, that violence would have to break out, that's dangerous stuff. Crisis thinking leads to crisis. Catastrophic thinking leads to catastrophe. David French has a good piece on this over at National Review. He says, we hear quite a bit about dehumanizing rhetoric in American public life. It appears that tens of millions of Americans now have dehumanizing beliefs. One out of five Republicans and Democrats agree with the statement that their political adversaries lack the traits to be considered fully human. They behave like animals. French rightly points out, where would these numbers be if we hadn't been extraordinarily lucky in the last couple of years? Imagine if the congressional baseball shooter had not been confronted by two brave Capitol police officers. Imagine a nation where the Charlottesville terrorist kept plowing through ranks of protesters, or where that superfan, that Trump superfan bomber actually made functional explosives and killed a bunch of media members. In other words, we're, we're close to a breaking point, and that's because we don't see each other as essentially human anymore, because we don't see what principles we all have in common. We fail to recognize our common philosophical heritage, the principles that unite us. I have a book coming out on Tuesday called The Right Side of History, and it really is about that. It really is about the level of anger that seems to have taken over our society, our determination to castigate everyone who disagrees with us as evil and terrible. Not their views. Sometimes their views are terrible. But they themselves, they are bad people that we must fight with. They're not just misinformed. They're operating outside the scope of normal, rational behavior. There are certain things that we used to hold in common in the country, certain beliefs, the belief that Every individual is made in the image of God, a belief that springs from a Judeo-Christian heritage, the belief that we're all capable of reason and that we're able to talk with one another. Those beliefs have started to come apart. So, for example, the belief that we're all individually made in the image of God, that's obviously coming apart 
because we now have a hierarchy in which we are supposed to value certain identities above other identities, whether it's white supremacism or the softer version of intersectionality that suggests that tribal politics is the way of striking back against a hierarchical system. The belief that we are united by reason, that we can talk with one another and convince one another that we are changeable, that if we make good arguments and discuss together, that maybe we'll come to some sort of consensus or at least clarity. That's gone by the wayside because we now see, since we are not reasonable creatures any longer, we now see ourselves as members of tribes to attack one another. The belief that we are in control of our own destiny in a free country. A large portion of the country believes that the country is not free because they believe that they don't have enough material prosperity, which is odd because this is the most prosperous country in the history of the world. They believe that there's too much endemic institutional bigotry for anyone to truly be free. But that's simply not true. People are free to make their own decisions by and large in the United States. And if they're not, we're all against those obstacles. Nobody is in favor of people stopping each other from doing things that they want to do. No one is, is in favor of stopping somebody's progress because of who they are. Or if, they, if, if you are like that, then you don't belong to the American bargain. Right? That's, that's not part of the American bargain. These principles were enshrined in Judeo-Christian values. They're broadened over time to include as many people as there are on the earth. The balance between the notions of reason and certain assumptions that you have to take on faith, that human beings have, human beings have innate value as individuals, that the universe is an understandable place, and that we, using our reason, can reach out to that universe and try and comprehend it. That's where science was born. This was all the stuff that made Western civilization great. And now you are seeing people who are so dissatisfied with Western civilization, they want to toss it out for, for tribalism and brutality, the kind of tribalism and brutality that characterized most of human existence on the planet and that continues to characterize large swaths of humanity at the current time. Now, there's something deeply disturbing in that, in that beyond the obvious, in the Christchurch massacres and, and terrorist attacks. There, there's something else. In the manifesto, this, which I'm not going to discuss at length because I don't want to give it publicity. This, this piece of garbage mentions the West a lot. It talks about Western civilization in the West. It's mentioned a few times in the manifesto. White supremacy inherently does not understand what Western civilization is, was, and should be. The principles of Western civilization were always about broadening. They were, there's a reason that slavery was abolished in Western civilization before it was abolished anywhere else. There's a reason that democracy was established in Western civilization. Because Western civilization was about the idea that we are all capable of reason, that we are all special, that we are all valuable, that principles matter, that reason matters. That's what Western civilization was about. If you boil down Western civilization to the color of people's skin, you're getting Western civilization wrong. And on the other hand, if you boil down the attacks on Western civilization to intersectional tribal politics, you're getting Western civilization wrong too. We all live within a, a framework of Western civilization. That framework was built on fundamental, important principles. Those principles allow us to be happy. They say that we are responsible for our own decisions, that we have the responsibility to be kind to one another, to see each other as human beings and not as monsters, not to see each other as part of groups, but to analyze each other on an individual level. That's the fundamental basis of democracy, of small r republicanism. You can't have a civilization without those things, and we're beginning to see civilization fall apart as we ignore those things. I discuss all of this in my new book, The Right Side of History. I'll talk about it more next week as it comes out. And once we recognize that the better angel, angels of our nature, as, as Lincoln said, have to prevail, 
once we recognize that we had better be brothers or we will be enemies, the real crisis becomes not climate change. The real crisis becomes not demographics. The real crisis becomes how can we see each other better face-to-face as human beings? Arthur Brooks has a study he likes to talk about. This study essentially was about an Asian guy who went around the United States in the 1940s and he stayed at a bunch of hotels, bed and breakfasts. He would drive up, he'd knock on the door, they would admit him, he'd stay. He did this to 100 different bed and breakfasts. Then after that, he and his student assistants called up all of these bed and breakfasts and said, do you allow Asians to sleep in your hotels? And virtually all of them said no, because discrimination against Asian Americans at the time was extraordinarily prevalent. The point of the study was that when it comes to -to face-to-face interactions, how we treat each other as human beings, we do much better when it comes to that than we do when we are made to be strangers. The internet helps us to be strangers. You'll find that your life becomes significantly better when you tune out of Twitter, something I have trouble doing. And you'll find that your life becomes better when you build a social fabric because whenever we deal with each other on a real life one-to-one level, we realize that those basic, those basic notions of, of human nature and civilization and reason, that we, we actually do agree on those things. For the most part in the West, we still do agree on those things. Now, maybe our partisanship takes over and we wish to get rid of those fundamental principles on behalf of the crisis of the day. But if we do, we are not just going to lose when it comes to the crisis, we're gonna lose when it comes to our civilization as a whole. Every week at this time, we do something I like to call Uncle Ben's SJW story time. Because as we've seen this episode, the left is perfectly willing to use children's literature to push certain political points. And so very often we analyze old children's literature to show how it is sufficiently unwoke, how, how old children's literature is filled with bigotry and brutality and non-social justice. Well, today, we've changed tactics. Today, on Uncle Ben's SJW Storytime, we're going to examine a very woke progressive book, a wonderful book for your child. All right, you guys, you guys ready? It's time for Uncle Ben's SJW Storytime. Today's book, boys and girls, my first book of feminism, for boys, by Julie Merberg. Respecting your mom is the right thing to do because she is a person the one who made you. So far, so good. All right. Although it seems kind of sexist. How do you know your mom made you? Why not your dad? Why not? Don't be, even this book is not woke enough. Stop assuming gender. Feminist book. It's okay to cry and to love and be sad. Boys can feel more than just happy or mad. Didn't know that. I thought boys were basically just there to yell at people and then smile. That's pretty much it. So good to know. Good to know. Someday when you're grown, you will be big and strong. If you think strength means muscles, your thinking is wrong. Strength kind of means muscles, like at least a little. I mean, I don't mean to be too critical of the SJW book, but being strong like does mean you lift heavy things. Flex your brain power. Speak up for what's right. Know that women are strong. Use your words to win fights. Respect human rights equality. Or you could just shriek at the loudest possible volume, which is what I usually encounter on campuses from people who who do this sort of thing. (coughs) Here we go. Play dress up or wrestle, make art, play with toys. Games are not made for just girls or just boys. Be friends with girls, play with kids who are kind. You'll learn more from friends who are different, you'll find. Well, fine, okay, I suppose. Not sure why that's feminist. And here we go. When you eat, clear your dishes. Remember, this is for boys. When you pee, lift the seat. Clean up after yourself, think of others, be neat. Now it's always seemed sufficiently non-feminist, this notion that men have to put down the toilet seat when they're done, for example. 
That's always weird to me. Like, why wouldn't a woman have to put up the toilet seat when she's done? After all, men and women are supposed to be equal. If I can't open a door for you, then why should I put down the toilet seat for you? By the way, note, I always put down the toilet seat. That's just the kind of dude I am. As soon as you're able, you can do simple chores, make your bed, take the trash out, fold laundry, sweep floors. There aren't girl jobs or boy jobs. Do what you can do. It's nobody's job to clean up after you. So far, okay, that's all right. If you learn to work hard, you can do something cool. Fight fires, bake cakes, fly a spaceship, teach school. Find a job you'll love heading off to each day. Know the women you work with must earn equal pay. Is what you're telling a three-year-old boy. Make sure that the women earn equal pay. My favorite part of this particular page is the picture. We see a little girl who is holding a fire hose. Now, if you know anything about fire hoses, that takes like three grown dudes who have some body mass because a little girl on the end of a fire hose, the image is a little funny, but it's mostly just super dangerous and terrible. Know the women you work with must earn equal pay. I showed this book to my wife. She was laughing her ass off. <laughs> and as mentioned, my wife is a doctor. If a girl says don't touch me or asks you to go, you must leave her alone because no means no. We are literally teaching three-year-olds about sexual harassment. Now, this is a rule, by the way, that applies to everyone. I'm not sure why it's about a girl saying don't touch me. Like, these kids don't have sexual instincts. They're three. My son already tells his sister, keep your hands on your own body. But that has nothing to do with sexual harassment. A just and fair world is within all our sights. If you spread the word, women's rights are human rights. And human rights are human rights also. So there's that. Be respectful, be kind, be fair, and here's why. Because women are holding up half of the sky. Why only half? Why not the whole sky? Why not the whole sky? Also, what are women? Are women, I mean, this, this book seems kind of exclusive. It doesn't seem to include trans women. It doesn't define gender differently than sex. So even this very, very woke book doesn't seem quite woke enough for me. I'm a little disappointed in the wokeness of this feminist book, but I will certainly read it to my son because it is very important that he knows that his sister gets equal pay. He's two and a half. Also very, very important that he knows, for example, that women's rights are human rights. Or you could just teach children that all people are made in the image of God and deserve equal rights. You could just do that. Oh, well, it's okay. Much better, much better. Very woke book. Thank you. My first book of feminism for boys by Julie Berber. Solid stuff. Well, we are reaching the end of this Friday. And I have to say, I am quite relieved at that. It's been a very long week. It's been a very bad news week, particularly the end of the news week. So this weekend, go spend some time with people that you love. Treasure the people who are around you. Reach across the aisle. Find somebody to treat as a human being. Try to make yourself a better person by doing so. And this holds true for everyone on all sides. Instead of trying to impute motives to people you don't know, instead of trying to suggest that people are responsible for actions they did not take, instead of that, why don't we try to celebrate the common ground we have that makes our world so safe and so wonderful and so prosperous? If we do that, then our world will become even more wonderful, safe, and prosperous. If we don't, if we continue to tear each other down, if we continue to suggest that we are all in league with the worst of the other side, if we continue to pretend that tribal politics is a solution as opposed to the problem burgeoning within Western civilization, then we will be taking down the civilization that is worth upholding, the civilization that all mourns together when something deeply terrible happens to groups who are minorities in the West. All right, well, we'll be back here next week. I hope that you have a wonderful, meaningful, 
joyous weekend. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of news. And next week, my new book comes out, The Right Side of History. So if you have a chance to pick it up over the weekend, go ahead and pre-order it. It always helps us with the New York Times rankings, for example. And we'll see you then to explain more. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Thank you.